Welcome to the Abstract Doctors Podcast. Today, Dr. G and Dr. C will speak with PhD and Associate Professor at Stanford, pain scientist, international speaker, psychologist, and author, Beth Darnell. For more information on Beth, please visit BethDarnell.com. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors Podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. So we're very honored to have uh, Dr. Beth Darnell from Stanford with us today, David. Uh, she's in a, uh, her, her bio is amazing. Uh, several, several dozen uh, publications. Um, we want to get into some concepts about uh, default network in the brain, catastrophizing. Um, I happened to uh, hear her speak uh, on pain management and virtual uh, reality at a conference at the end of February, which happens to be about the last time I traveled. So I'd be curious <laughs> what Beth has done any traveling since COVID hit. That happened yep. to be the same weekend our conference in D.C., uh, was back to back when CPAC was having their uh, conference. And I remember getting stuck in a herd of them uh, and then later finding out that several had tested positive. So that was an interesting memory for me for that weekend. But uh, additionally, uh, my understanding, you know, this podcast uh, has grown out of the abstract athlete. And not only is uh, Beth a uh, internationally known uh, psychologist, but also uh, formerly a premier athlete. So we want to hear about that. So um, if you can jump into any part of those, Beth, if you'd like. Okay, great. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm so intrigued by the focus of this intersection um, and we were just chatting um, right before I jumped on about, you know, this concept that human suffering, which can be experienced through a lot of different avenues, presents an opportunity for us to deepen awareness about ourselves and potentially bring forward um, unexpected transformations um, that, that could be probed and understood better through this creative process where we sort of set aside our preconceived notions of who we are and what we're experiencing and what we can be. So I, I'm, I love this focus. And um, as you mentioned, I have some experience with this personally. I started competing um, as a runner when I was eight years old, believe it or not. And so I was a, an elite runner as a child and grew up with um, self-imposed suffering <laughs> because that's, you know, if you're competing at that level, you, you learn how to be with pain and push against those boundaries of pain. And it helped me later in life when I actually developed my own chronic pain. Um, and so then I had to learn how to deal with chronic pain um, more from a medical basis versus from 
you know, athletics, which to be honest, was a choice. I was choosing to interface with suffering on a daily basis and play with that and learn how to be with it. But then when it became sort of a medical phenomenon, it felt less in my control. I didn't understand the pieces of how to exactly apply the wisdom of my athletic experience into the medical situation. Um, but I had to learn that on my own and it's kind of become my career now. That's a fantastic uh, story and, and that's fantastic. You got to the other side. Uh, I, you know, what I know about burnout in college athletics, I know the three highest risks are female, solo athlete, individual sport, um, and extremely high uh, expectations. You know, so it sounds like, you know, you were nailed. Trifecta. She hit the trifecta. You had the trifecta and you got to yeah. the other side. Um, I know for me, my manifestation, my transformation, I was an All-American wrestler at Ohio State. And again, an individual sport, I think there's something great to be said about team sports, um, mm -hmm. individual sports, you know, you're out there on your own without excuses. You know, when you lose a soccer game, you know, you can sometimes dissipate some of that stress uh, that it wasn't just you or, or that's that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So individual sports is a big deal. In my manifestation of unremitting persistent stress turned to controlling the situation, like controlling another athlete in the arena. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having atrial fibrillation and anger problems. So mm -hmm. my, th this podcast for me is that creativity outlet. Um, mm -hmm. And you seem to have found it as well. So mm -hmm. kudos yeah. to you. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's that's interesting what you're just saying. And um, I, I went on from being a, a child runner into uh, becoming a long distance um, competitive marathoner and then ultra marathoner and my specialty was high altitude incline um, races that would begin at like 7,000 feet and you finish between 14 and 15,000 feet and what? so yeah wow, it yeah. sounds like masochism but it, oh, oh, it was but you know what I loved it and I found yeah, that I was sure. good at it just because I had the just the physical attributes and was sponsored by multiple companies so it was kind of a semi-professional endeavor and I, I continued on this pathway in my um, well into my 30s, and and when I stopped competitive athletics was the day I received my first grant to study um, pain, and in in people with chronic pain, and and what that was for me it was a flashpoint because I was competing um, because that was the best offer I had in my life. And then when I realized I had the opportunity to help other people with their pain, um, well, that that was just my calling. And so my entire life took on that direction. And while I still love running, um, it's it's not, uh, you know, I, I'm not competing now. Well, All right. the, the, thank goodness for the federal government then, huh? I'm sure it was a yeah. federal grant, it sounds like. That's well, awesome. you know, it was a grant from the American Pain Society and they oh, have okay. something. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't it was a national award, but it yeah. was it was the, that seeded 
my entire path. And, and, you know, here I am, you know, not, not quite 15 years later, but almost. And well, it, it's and, a good thing you keep getting all these amazing PCORI and other grants. Otherwise your body would be crushed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of came naturally. It was interesting. Cool. And, and I think as all athletes understand, you know, the every, for me, and I was also a competitive cyclist as well, but that's another story, but it, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, Cause you, you get injured well, running and then you have to course. figure something else out. It's all downhill. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but the entire endeavor is pushing against your own limitations and in the face of extreme physical duress, learning how to relax and accept some aspects of it and then deepen into the process. And, and so for me, it was, it was a constant lesson in opening and relaxing in the face of adversity. And there's so many spiritual correlates to that. I mean, it's like, it's a metaphor for life, honestly. Um, so I can, you know, I joke um, to people who, that uh, I know really well, and if anyone of my age and generation has seen the karate kid and you know mr miyagi is the wax on wax off and that is what you know athletics was for me it was training it's life training for how to prepare your soul and your being for your ultimate challenge in life which is some way bringing forward your best to be of service to humanity so the athletics for me was a vehicle but, 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 but Beth, what, what are your thoughts on the fact that the vast majority of athletes, even those at the, the level you're talking about, don't make that transition? You know, certainly the, the ones who have never gotten to that level have a, are having challenges just in their sport but, but, and beyond, but, but the vast majority don't. And, and, and obviously, it's a selection bias. We, we, you know, Ron and I, maybe you are seeing those that, that aren't doing well, but, but I, I, you know, it's true of high-performing military folks as well. You know, you can't be an army ranger for 25 years, you know, yeah. at a certain level. And, and, and they're not able to make that. What, 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 what are you, and again, you, you may not have all the insights even though you've accomplished it, but what are your thoughts on what, what about your upbringing, yeah. your philosophy have allowed you to, to, to make that, uh, that smooth transition or, or other than writing grants? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. I, I got my doctoral degree at the University of Colorado at Boulder. So that's when I was doing a lot of my competitive athletics in, in Colorado. And my dissertation- Have you done the Hard Rock 100 in Telluride? Um, no, but uh, oh. I was, I know, I know there's, there's a whole on, story there, but, but yeah. yeah, well, we'll talk about that offline. I did pace someone throughout, through parts of it, but okay. um, my specialty was a 50 K oh, um, okay. run. So yeah, a little shorter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I was, my dissertation was on elite athletes and self-concept. Uh -huh. And so what I was interested in understanding was among competitive runners and competitive cyclists, what is it that compels people, you know, your body is your, your vehicle for performance, but some people end up abusing their bodies out of a desperate need to maintain their self-concept, their standing in their sport. And so per performance enhancing drugs, one critical example of that, another eating disorders, you know, I've got to get my weight down. And so you, the body ends up being abused within the process to maintain self-concept. And so that was really 
interesting to me how how that we can kind of there can be a distortion there that is perpetuated from you know our drive to achieve and you asked me an interesting question that you know how did you make this transition and and I think it, at least for me there although I had a great desire to you know whatever you know be famous or have break records and everyone wants to be successful but at the end of the day I guess I had an underlying awareness that I wasn't on earth to just be a runner. I, I felt a deeper purpose. And I think that if if one is not connected to a deeper purpose, then that loss of identity around sport is, is so threatening, could be so catastrophic to one's entire identity, the very reason for being that that is the core of the struggle. And so, to some extent, I was just lucky because I was born with an understanding that there was something more. And my struggle was actually figuring out when to give up running because, but I, I said to myself, you know, if I achieved all the glory in the sport of running, would I be satisfied at the end of my life? And I thought, no, I'm, I'm here for something else and I need to move in that direction. Well, but, but, but how do you, how do you convey that level of metacognition to your clients slash patients? Because, you know, that's extremely extremely sophisticated, you know, hyperfrontal low, beyond, you know, superhuman at some level. How, I mean, and, and yet the majority of individuals that we all see for, as, as patients, clients are not at that level and, and may never get there. It's just, it's, you know, just not, not in the cards. How, how do you, how do you translate that then? Because you did it, but I don't know right. that that is translatable to the majority of people, certainly that I see or that I refer because I don't want to see them to run. How, how, how do you, yeah, how do you how do you convey that, or, or do you not bring that up? What do you do? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, and you know, as you know, we're all individuals, and you know, with varying degrees of readiness and awareness, um, and we're deeply influenced by our, our environment and our possibilities and our early life messaging. Um, but the extent to which we can be present with other people and help them source value as humans, as unique beings, and understand that their value extends well beyond their physical performance in a sport, um, can start to create a foundation um, to anchor them in, in being able to envision um, their purpose beyond just the sport. Right. Yeah. Um, if I could add to that, um, you know, working with some athletes, I will uh, tell them to work on their purpose and I tell them, make it really big. My purpose in everything you ever hear me talk about professionally should all fall into the three, my three word purpose, help people adapt. And, and that guides my behavior. And so if you got a wrestler who wants to be uh, a gold medalist, I tell them, you know, you got to get a bigger purpose than that, like you're saying, and work on that, and it can be vague, and that's good. And then I, I still haven't come up, maybe need Dave's creativity to make this a little catchier, but I go with go bigger than immediate, then immediate. It's a takeoff off of go, you know, go uh, think global, act local. 
I tell people when they're stuck on trying to win, 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 to get back to their purpose, a really big, vague purpose. Now, what are you going to do in this moment in that direction to help break them free from the ruminations that are the underpinning to catastrophizing? Um, and so, so if a if a patient, you know, that emotional uh, abuse as a child, um, you know, and now she's a mother, her purpose is to break the cycle for her daughter. And so we use the breathing techniques, clear her head, have her articulate what her purpose is. It's not about the jerk they're interacting with. It's about breaking the cycle for her daughter. And then now she can make the the immediate decision of not carrying on this argument with this person that's meaningless and that's that's how i approach it whether it's athletes or pain or or brain injury well and in in our ptsd programs and our some of our pain and brain injury programs at, at our local va in richmond we actually are using this is to help ron johnson we're actually using creativity to bridge that period before they can accept that new purpose because that's a huge step. You, you yeah. know, you, you two have just articulated it like, oh, of course, that's my bigger purpose. You know, but it's really hard, A, to identify it. If it you know, it, it, it may be simple or it may be complex, but it's hard to identify. But that, that painful area where you are oh, yeah. suffering is so oh. hard to get through that we use a range of creativity elements um, and, and, you know, as well as elements of integrative health care to, to kind of ease some of their suffering. But, but creativity is a huge area. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, Beth, Beth, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I love that as a tool. And like you said, uh, we're sort of a, discussing it as if it's um, so simple. And the only thing I'll say is that, you know, it really wasn't simple for me either. Um, I started running competitively when I was eight, and I really came into this fundamental awareness and understanding about 30 years later. So, you know, put that in perspective, you know, and I did it, you know, this was on my own, could just working with myself, coming into awareness, making a lot of mistakes, struggling, um, focusing on my performance, valuing my identity based on performance and and working with that so by by no means do i want to create a misperception that it was either simple quick or easy it's just because i got started so young that i i think i worked through a lot of hard lessons maybe earlier in life i'm not really sure but you know solidly in my mid to late 30s before i had a handle on it i, I was I was at a uh, probably minor league division 12 hockey game with my wife and I'm in medical school and the world's my oyster, but yet I'm watching these hockey players getting paid next to nothing, playing a sport they love. And I was so jealous. <laughs> um, I was still struggling with, with letting go of my sport, um, even though I was in medical school. And, and so with, with, you know, with our veterans, you know, they're, they come home and 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 they're they're they don't have the you know the world is their oyster situation they've yeah. they've been unfortunately damaged uh and injured and and their social situation might be in a poor situation so you know it was very difficult watching this minor league hockey game for me and i had everything in the world supporting me so 
I, I was recently watching professional hockey and I had none of those thoughts whatsoever. There's nothing I would rather be doing than what I do for a living. Playing hockey has no level of fun. Uh, but but, but, but to, 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 to get to some of your really fascinating research, we've got a, a, an expanding program of uh, pain for VR, uh, VR for pain actually, v virtual reality for pain management, particularly in individuals, uh, veterans with uh, spinal cord injury, but as well as brain injury. And, and we're really just exploring that space. Um, and, and we've had some wonderful results, but I'd love to hear about what your approach is and what you're finding and, 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 and how it might be applicable to folks who might be listening to this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I've focused my career really on distilling out what are the most essential ingredients to equip individuals with skills and information so that they can rapidly begin to apply self-management principles, techniques, um, evidence-based skills in order to gain the best amount of control that's possible to them. So I think part of what's at the core of a lot of suffering is there's an element of loss, loss of control. And so the extent to which we can help anchor people in um, control, in self-regulation of thoughts, of emotions, physiological responses. And so it, it kind of gets back to where you were essentially saying that you use creativity as a tool in certain circumstances to help interrupt unhelpful cognitive and emotional patterns that are automatic and only maintain suffering. So we need to equip individuals with those skills, those effective skills that interrupt automatic and unhelpful patterns and help anchor them in to best controlling themselves and their experience. And, and from that place, what we have is choice. Then we can start deciding how we want to think, um, what can we do? Where do we choose to place our energy? Um, how do we want things to go? But in the absence of that, when things are automatic and they're driven by automatic cognitive patterns, physiological responsivity, we lack choice. We're sort of at the mercy of these unhelpful patterns and it's human physiology. I mean, this isn't about deficiencies of any individual. It's about human physiology. And that becomes compounded in individuals who, with additional vulnerabilities, a brain injury, spinal cord injury, um, chronic pain. Our brains and our bodies you, uh, try and adapt and try and protect us. But the ways in which the nervous system attempts to protect us ends up actually steering us in unhelpful ways and so we need to gain that skill set and that's what my whole yeah you know, my background is um, psychology and I've dedicated my life to um, developing brief and you know just efficient interventions for patients um, people with chronic pain also acute pain so that um, we equip people as early on in the process with these low risk um, skills that empower people to begin steering their own um, neurobiology in a helpful direction. 
So now I can understand exactly why Garbo invited you on this. You are essentially the same exact thing as what he's telling me, which is awesome. <laughs> but but I would have not understood a word of what you just said if I hadn't spent the last six months listening to Ron Garbo with that. But and so oh, I believe cool. I think what you're saying is right on target, and I can see why he loved your lecture at AAPMM. I get it now. Um, well, but but what I've told Ron is is okay. We're on the radio or a podcast, wherever it is, what, what is a, what's, what's your idea of a brief intervention? What, what yeah. are you talking mm -hmm. about? Because, you know, when he explains it to me, I don't get it. But when he shows me, I get it. And then, you yeah. know, but so, so, so help me with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, you know, this this broad field is what we call behavioral medicine. Um, and so behavioral medicine for pain and how this is typically delivered is either one-on-one -on -one with a psychologist or in a group format in which um, people undergo weekly sessions for eight, 10, 12 weeks at a time, usually the sessions are two hours each. So you may receive 20 to 25 hours of total treatment time. And what we know is that that's both, that's inefficient. And for most patients, it's inaccessible. It's really hard to find a pain psychologist. They're just, they're, they're in the community, but there's not enough to meet the demands of the nation. And so, um, myself and colleagues did some of the primary research demonstrating the deficits in access to behavioral pain care. And that um, helped establish the foundation for, for my work, which has emphasized um, extracting out the most important ingredients in these longer course treatments. So if you're going to go for eight sessions over eight weeks, um, what are the most essential ingredients and then compressing it down into one two-hour sessions, a single session, because as a, as a pain psychologist, what I recognized is that I may only get to see people once, and if I'm only going to see them once, what do I need to tell them? How can I set them up to be independent in one session? And so I developed um, a treatment called Empowered Relief. It's two, two hours long. Um, we've been studying it now for five years um, and just finished an NIH-funded um, study on it and are getting ready to submit our final results. But, um, you know, without saying too much about it, um, we're able to show that it is um, non-inferior to eight weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy three months after treatment for some of our key outcomes. So, you know, pain catastrophizing being one of them. Um, so we're pretty excited about that because what it's telling us and what other studies, um, including my research on VR and some on di other digital therapies, what we're learning is that um, the brain and the nervous system is more malleable than has been previously appreciated. And we need to step outside of these rigid concepts from the 1980s about how we best deliver information. We need to meet people where they are, leverage technology, and give it to them in an accessible format, ideally that's on demand. And so um, some of my digital treatments, I do research on virtual reality as well, and we're really excited to be getting excellent results for that as well. If, if you want to meet me where I'm at, never say anything bad about the 80s again. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, no, that was fantastic, Beth. 
um, but uh, that's a uh, that's why we. I'm so glad you 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 were here to help enlighten Dave. Um, I needed that. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> well, but the, 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 let me play devil's advocate. Now, now, again, I, I okay. actually do agree with what you're saying, and I've experienced it. And you know, our VR people and our home and our digital health people say the same way. But let me let me push a little bit, if I may. Sure. All right. You know what? I've I've been to so many um, sports medicine or fitness lectures where where they talk about this wonderful uh, research that says you need a you know, X number of hours a day of a certain threshold of exercise in order to optimize your cardiac um, function, yeah. your life, your, your, your longevity, reduce anything you want. And, and so they'll say, we've studied this and you know, they're not presenting the upper limit of what the researchers found. They're saying this really is the floor, right? And yeah. the crowd listens to it. And let's assume the number was 90 minutes a day, five days a week, give or take. Yeah, and and you know they 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 present these data, their wonderful graphs and p values, and it's published in JAMA. Although everything now there's a thousand versions of JAMA, it doesn't mean anything. But the original JAMA in paper, yeah. Is, right? yeah. And then two years later, there's a study that says, well, yeah, that's good, but nobody ever does, other than Beth, you know, running up mountains. Nobody does ninety minutes a yeah. day five days a week. So sure. we gave them one where they're doing 30 minutes while they're drinking beer every third day. And yeah. the results were pretty good. You know, it was yep. better than sitting on a, on a, on a couch. It was better than flailing yourself with a cat, but you know, but the gold standard, which really was not the most was the absolute floor showed so a certain level of performance, but now we're kind of good because you know, th that whole, it, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's not inferior to, um, has been one of the kind of ways that m much virtual health is kind of hidden behind. With, yeah. And they always say, well, but at least the patients can come there. There's not enough of us. We, you know, so, so, you know, I got to push back just a little bit because what's going to happen is you're going to have this great publication. Congratulations. And it's going to show that. And then the next person's going to say, oh, I can do it in 30 minutes in a yeah. group setting or the insurance companies forget about what the science is. The insurance companies say, well, we can do it, you know, with a, with a, you know, a, well, with a less trained specialist. Oh yeah. Less rigorous environment. Yep. And it also was good, you know, and we yep. keep, yep. keep rating this. Yeah. Where, what's wrong with actually saying you got to put in some of the work and, and I'm, you know, being a little facetious, but what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, oh, excellent. Excellent points. And, and in fact, I train healthcare clinicians to deliver this two hour session and they can be physical therapists, they can be nurses, they can be doctors, anybody. So to address your exact point, um, when we do the research, we do it in a more controlled environment where you have, you know, we have doctoral level psychologists delivering the treatment. Um, and so what we're doing when we publish that science is what we're saying in, in the, under the best circumstances, this is the result that you get, right? And so you have to then do follow-up studies where you use other professionals or you deliver it online and then you're able to show um, how the, the treatment operates or whether the results hold up under those circumstances. My, my philosophy on this at this point in time is that we have 100 million Americans living with ongoing pain of some type and they're not getting 
anything. And so, you know, we what we need to do, there is an ethical imperative that we supply provide all Americans with a basic level of behavioral pain care and that we need to eliminate the obstacles to that. Because when we don't do that, we are perpetuating their suffering, their symptoms, over-medicalization, and it's very um, poor, poor cost-effectiveness for treatments. And, you know, ultimately it leads to um, additional prescriptions, procedures, et cetera. So, So I feel like on balance, when we really think about what's needed in the United States, I would love for everybody to have you know, psychological care delivered by the best psychologists. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of the nature of the beast to some extent that um, we can't control who delivers what treatment all the time. Um, but what I'm putting together and packaging and really advocating for is a concept that this basic level of behavioral medicine doesn't require that level of training. Um, I have a doctoral degree, but I don't believe that you need to have a doctoral degree to deliver this intervention. You really don't. You do need to be trained and certified. And so, you know, there's there's real training that, that goes into becoming certified. And you can't just, you know, find a, a slide deck on the internet and then start doing it. You have to be trained. But um, but I, yeah, so, so there's a process, but you don't have to go get a PhD to do it. So just listening to this podcast, isn't enough? <laughs> well, no, for you, it might be. It reminds me of the, 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 my trips to, to Asia, China in particular, there's a picture of Myanmar behind me, but, but where, where there simply aren't people of your level of expertise, there aren't, you know, um, physical therapists who have more than a than a bachelor's degree, and they don't even call them physical therapists, but they have you know a billion people to treat, not all of them with chronic pain. Yes. And and they've said, you know what, we are accepting the fact that perhaps it could be better if we had X, Y, and Z more people. But the reality is, as you say, that people are having strokes and have back pain and having spinal cord injuries, and they're either going to have their families take care of them, possibly better than some that some professionals, but, but, or they're going to get very little care. So we're going to train high school graduates to do a certain level of care. Yeah. Really a lot of care. Then we're going to train bachelor level therapists, physical and occupational. Uh, We're going to have masters prepared counselors, perhaps, or, you know, whatever it is. And it works. And I haven't seen that their outcomes are any worse. And when I'm over there, I'm like, well, that's kind of what we do. It's just that everybody is is a quote doctor now in, in in the rehab world or in therapy world. You know, it's like I'm a doctor of something. And I'm like, that doesn't mean you're good. It may. Yeah. But, but as yeah. you say, you know, if they if they can't get it, it doesn't matter. Although I, I think we do have to, you know, I, I think whether it's called certification, there has to be some, you know, loving yes. floor so that we're making sure they're getting at least a product. And they're not just getting a concept, you know, that, well, you know, yes, behavioral medicine is good, but what level of, and how do they do that? How, how do you, other than the, well, maybe the certification is the answer, but, but how do you then prevent people from reading your cool books, which I, which I've seen or, or listening to your tapes that I'm sure that you're going to make or this podcast, how do we prevent them from kind of then just going and doing it? You know, what, what is there, is there, you know, um, what, what, what's, what's the carrot 
to yeah. hey, there's a reason why as a clinician, you'd want to get certified. Right. Well, you know, honestly, most people really are seeking a structure and they, they, they need the training because that, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily have the behavioral medicine background, but when they come in, when they come to get certified in empowered relief, they, they don't just learn how to do the, they get the treatment manual, they get all the patient materials, it's one-stop shopping. So they get the whole program and treatment product um, for free. There, there's a fee to beca- for the 16 hours of training. So it's it's a pretty rigorous training program and we provide structure for them to practice the class before they're ready to go live. Um, there's some ongoing supports. Most people really do desire that. Now, I think to your, to your question, what's stopping someone from just going out and developing their own thing? Well, you know, I think it's human nature. That's what we do. That's the marketplace. Um, people will. We just happen to be about eight years ahead of them uh, because we developed this in 2013, published in it in 2014, and we're just finishing a five-year NIH-funded study. So we actually have the science behind it, and, and that still matters to most people. So organizations will... Um, you know, not everyone, not everyone, but um, our leadership excluded. But yes, yes, we got it. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah. So you know, a lot of people want something that's, that's really cool. road tested. Yeah, I think. Cool. Yeah. Well, if, if you haven't added creativity and art into that uh, practice, I would look at that for the next iteration. It can only get better. You know, yeah. I, whether that's just to you know to get them to buy in or to connect yeah. with them. I, I just, we've just found it to be, uh, you know, something at the next level. And, and it, it's scary how well even Vietnam veterans who are hardened in their difficulties and, you know, who, who are looking at some of our creative people who like Ron Johnson have long hair and this fuzzy beard and, you know, weird <laughs> way of talking, you know, but they, you know, they still, they relate to, the, the idea that, that you're more than just what you're yeah. like, you, you yeah. know, a person PTSD or a, or a Vietnam vet, you're, you're, you know, we, we've got this creativity in you and, you know, everybody can make a little music or draw a little picture or do a little dance. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a song, uh, but, 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 but I, I think if, if, if for your next iteration, just think about just as, you know, from a marketing standpoint too. So. But, but that's true. Yeah. Well, I, I like that. And, you know, this, the, the two hour empowered relief class, I mean, it's foundational skills based pain management class, but it's, it, it's not the end of life or learning, right? I mean, that's, a, that's a, that is the requisite foundational session zero. And then from that, what other tailored treatments do patients need? Some may need uh, a module or a treatment on trauma. Some may need a module or on creativity, for instance. And so this is sort of our concept on um, precision medicine, precision pain care, because if we just try and sign everyone up for eight or 10 sessions, very few people can do that. But what they can do more likely is receive modularized 
care that is tailored to their needs and their wants. Um, because if someone doesn't want it, I don't care if it's the best treatment in the world. If they're not going to engage with it, it doesn't matter. So we have to account for their needs and their wants and their readiness to engage. And that's where some of these modularized treatments um, are so helpful because they get to choose. Well, but are, are you are you are they are you giving them a virtual you know like something at home that's providing the care or you're doing it a human being on one end versus another end is it is that how you're doing the two hours is it live but you know whether in person or digital so, yeah, it, so it's not an avatar or something like that pre-covid we were doing classes where we could have about 80 people at a time in the room getting the class 8080 and so it includes patients and their family members so we were you know, packing people in, it's didactic, it's a class, it's destigmatizing. Um, and so we would get really great attendance and, and uh, buy-in with that. We could treat the whole family. Um, Post-COVID, we're moving everything online. And so we're having groups, you know, 30, 40 people um, in a single session class, but it's online. And so people can dial in from anywhere in the country. If you haven't thought of this, um, sending them a creativity and a creativity box to their house. Oh, um, that's great. Part of that would be, you know, because the, you know, the idea is you really need a takeaway. I, we, we've all, yeah. you know, because, you know, I, I think you know, we do a lot of virtual health in the VA. We've been doing it for years. Yeah. And like you, everybody in the world is not doing it, but we've been doing it forever. And, yeah. you know, it, 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 they, they like the convenience and it's, it's, it's as good as in person for the most part, for most of the research that we've seen, but, 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 but the stickiness of it isn't quite the same, um, but because they're in their home, which may have some pathology to them or may not be quite the same as their therapeutic environment. And so giving them something that's part of your office, you know, meaning this, 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 this tactile creativity box and pain management box, you know, or, or module, um, is something that, that we have, uh, we, we certainly do give them, give them a harmonica to take home with them. We actually do that. They're fairly cheap from the VA standpoint, you know, or teach them how to use a, a tool or, or, you know, a simple journal uh, that they can be, be creative with their writing. You know, diary journaling is a, is a, is a wonderful thing too, we found as well, but that is fantastic. I love that. No, yeah. I, I, I really love that. And um, I, I am absolutely going to think on this and how to integrate creativity yep. absolutely yep. Cool. go ahead Ron. I, I i haven't talked in a while and we have never mentioned heart rate variability right what? How, how, how? <laughs> so so my gig um is that you know this is skills based and i i you know my angle on this is i believe at a minimum we could objectively teach people breathing skills to uncouple the physiology and of course, it doesn't solve all the problems, but but boy, the, the ability for people to learn and then to adopt artwork or make those decisions, because ultimately this is about them making decisions. Um, and so for me, if I could wave a magic wand, uh, I'd have everybody uh, practice a couple of weeks of the breathing skills. And now we're gonna talk, but um, that's my angle. Um, but yeah. Beth, it was a true privilege to have you. Um, I thank you so much for telling me that science still matters and that <laughs> some people still value it. I am yeah. very comforted going home tonight. Um, uh, I'm going to 
throw it to Dave and we'll let Beth, we'll let you have the last word. Yeah, they, I, I don't want to short shrift Ron's discussion on heart rate variability biofeedback because it, it is the next level in terms yeah. of being able to kind of be, you know, help people begin the transition. And again, that takeaway. People yeah. want you know, the controls piece you talked about. I mean, you can mm -hmm. you give them something that they can control parts of their life and their pain. And I think you combine that, some creativity and your amazing research, evidence-based uh, piece, and you know we've got a winner. Uh, so I think it's really exciting. Um, and uh, I hope we can have further discussions on this and maybe even look at a more practical way. How can we combine some of these great things and mm -hmm. uh, to, to really help even more folks? But Mm -hmm. But Beth, again, thank you. And, and Beth, please spend as much time as you like giving us the last word, but we'd love to hear your, your, your uh, philosophy, your closing philosophy. Well, it, it's been a pleasure. First of all, I mean, just thank you for having me on. I think we're, we're clearly all in agreement about, um, you know, this, this fundamental aspect of, um, you know, just utilizing the breath and regulation and how that can serve as this critical foundation to anchor people into more control, better awareness. Um, and and that's, that's actually a, a, a fundamental principle in the work that I'm doing, whether that's in in-person classes, digital treatments, or in the virtual reality environment where we have integrated biofeedback into those devices. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, I feel like what's needed is this focus on access. We know what works. What we need to do is figure out how to get it out into the world at scale and at lowest cost and really dismantling these barriers that are currently in place that prevent people from transcending some of this suffering that's sort of inherent in the human condition, but in particular within the context of some complex medical conditions or really um, unfortunate life circumstances. Um, so I, I'm just really pleased to chat about that with all of you. And I'm also um, really pleased to learn about the role of creativity and how you're integrating that um, to bring forward, you know, enhance this positive transformation. So I'm going to be educating myself more about that. And I'm inspired um, to think about how that um, can maybe enhance some of the work that I'm doing. So thank you. Thank you for having me on and thank you for um, bringing that forward to me. Thanks, Beth. All the best. Take yeah. care. Thanks for being Thank part. you. Thank you to Beth Darnell for joining Dr. G and Dr. C today on the Abstract Doctors podcast. For more information on Beth, please visit BethDarnell.com. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information on podcasts, events, subscription boxes, please visit TheAbstractAthlete.com. And as always, follow us on social media under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us on our next appointment when Dr. G and Dr. C speak with PhD in psychology and co-founder and research director of Illumaview, Kat Houghton.